It's only a matter of time until a woman gets terribly injured or possibly even killed in a sport because you know, governing bodies are too afraid to say that men shouldn't be competing against them. And I'm worried it's only a matter of time before, again, we see something horrific taking place in a safe space that should be for women only. And, you know, my, my, the, the, the big thing I talk about is the irreversible harm being caused to children from experimental medication and surgery. So, I mean, the impact is immeasurable. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with James Essis, a therapist and child counsellor who says gender ideology is the biggest issue of our time. James was expelled from his university therapy course after three years for launching a petition calling for safeguarding of vulnerable children with gender dysphoria. And it's not uncommon for anyone, but particularly children going through adolescence, to be uncomfortable in their bodies and dislike parts of themselves. But the answer, ideally, is to get people to be comfortable with who they are rather than trying to fundamentally change themselves. I mean, we're, we're literally removing completely healthy parts of young people's bodies that they can never get back again. He volunteered for several years at Childline, the UK's best-known child support service, and is concerned about the charity's safeguarding. I spoke to senior management. I discovered that Stonewall had had a hand in developing Childline's web materials about transitioning. Because Childline's webpage on gender identity basically, as far as I'm concerned, reads as a roadmap towards the different ways in which a child can transition. I'm Lee Hall. This is British Thought Leaders. James Essis, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Pleasure, thanks for having me. So you've said the issue of uh, gender ideology is the biggest issue of our time. Mm. Uh, there's obviously some pretty big things going on in the world at the moment. Why is this such a, a big issue and what impact is it having? Well, it's universal for a start. I mean, all around the world, particularly in the Western world, people are up in arms about the hold that this ideology has taken on all parts of people's lives. And I, yeah, I mean, I've said it's the issue of the time, and some people might say that that's, you know, a bit overdramatic. But actually, I, I would submit that there's not a single person who isn't impacted in some way mm. by this one way or another. And, you know, I'm sure we'll go on to talk about the people directly impacted, children, women, etc. But even this month, you know, it's Pride Month, and as members of the public going about our day-to-day -day lives, we, we, we can't seem to walk down the street without being bombarded with what I'm saying is ideolo ideologically based uh, information. Um, and so it, it seems as if our corporations, even our government, um, are no longer non-partisan in that respect. I know a lot of people um, contact you um, and, and with various issues. Could you give us some idea of the kind of scale and seriousness of the problem? Well, I mean, and the problem is there's not great statistics in this area, mm. but there's been a significant uplift in children saying that they are trapped in the wrong body. You know, we saw dramatic increases in children and young people presenting to the Tavistock Clinic, mm. wanting to medically transition. But even in terms of surveys, e even in terms of data from the last national census, it seems that more and more people, particularly younger people, are saying that they're trans. So we've got that. We're hearing stories time and time again of people being cancelled from education, from their jobs, because they dare to say that they believe that men can't become women and, and vice versa. Um, we're hearing stories of women's spaces being encroached upon. Everyone knows the Isla Bryson case in Scotland recently. You know, we're having male rapists being housed in female prisons. 
Um, so the numbers are definitely there. And I'm, I'm concerned that if this goes on, we're going to see serious negative repercussions. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's only a matter of time until a woman gets terribly injured or possibly even killed in a sport because you know, governing bodies are too afraid to say that men shouldn't be competing against them. And I'm worried it's only a matter of time before, again, we see something horrific taking place in a safe space that should be for women only. And, you know, my, my, the, the, the big thing I talk about is the irreversible harm being caused to children from experimental medication and surgery. So, I mean, the impact is immeasurable. What do you think the effect on mental health of these children is going to be? Children, uh, and particularly adolescents, uh, you know, particularly going through puberty has been a time for exploration and, and even rebellion. Uh, and we can think of many fads and cultures that you know, existed over time, even just things like you know, goth or emo culture, in which you know, parents would find the kids coming home one day looking completely different, wearing God knows what and listening to all sorts of mad music and all the rest of it. But the point was, number one, a, a phase that usually by the time people reached young adulthood would have grown out of, and number two, wasn't going to actually cause any long-lasting damage to them mentally mm. or physically. This seems to be the kind of new craze or fad as our time. The studies that show that um, young people, for example, who are coming out as trans will often know multiple other young people who are coming out as trans at the same time. We hear anecdotal stories of you know, whole cohorts of girls in, in all girls' schools coming out as trans within the short period of each other. Um, you know, I've often said that there's a kind of contagion element about this, um, particularly in the way that we've seen a complete inverse in who it's affecting. I mean, historically, it was men wanting to become women, and now the highest proportion in society is coming from young adolescent girls. Right. Um, and you're right, they're giving the wrong messages, and sometimes it's outside of parents' control. I, I'll often have parents contact me who are absolutely terrified because of what the children have been taught at school, where they're not able to monitor it. And often they have a real difficult time of even getting hold of the materials that children are being um, taught at schools. So, there's the, yes, there's a lot of adults who have a big role in what is being done to mm. children. There's also these third-party providers. I've had several guests on the show talk about them, um, who are playing quite a considerable role in providing materials to the school affecting what the children are being taught. Mm. Do you talk to us a bit about those? I mean, so much of these materials are coming from these kind of quote-unquote charities. Yeah. Um, these LGBT educational trusts. And, you know, on the face of it, they would say that they're teaching about inclusion and diversity, and, you know, that's all very vague and ambiguous and sounds lovely and positive, but actually when you drill down at the materials, it's quite concerning. Um, you know, I, I've come across materials kind of cartoon-style books for primary school students, telling them that the doctor took a guess at their sex when they were born and might have made a mistake. Yeah. Uh, I've seen materials with highly regressive material in, within it, you know, suggesting to young boys that liking the colour pink could be symptomatic of being trans. Um, I see gender ide ideology being snuck in behind the back door in um, modules where it's highly irrelevant. I mean, I've, I've seen this in, in computing and maths lesson plans. Somehow they managed to get the concept of binary versus non-binary gender into a computer coding class. Um, you know, which is, I mean, it's crazy, but it's happening.
Uh, moving on from the, the mental side, what about the physical side? What changes are some of these children going through if they do mm. go forward? Well, we're forever being told the puberty blockers are reversible. I was on a, a Twitter uh, conversation the other day and someone in America said uh, puberty blockers are 99.9% .9 reversible. And that is utter nonsense um, because studies show that they have an impact on brain development and bone growth. Um, of course, there's untold social effects. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing natural about disrupting somebody's puberty. Um, and so e even if, you know, a child can come off that at a later point and start puberty, uh, you know, uh, a 14, 15 year old who commences puberty a, a number of years after their peers, uh, that, that isn't natural. Um, Cross-sex hormones can have irreversible physical impacts and it can range from what might, some might think is kind of relatively benign, which is things like um, voice, vocal changes, hair growth. But one of the most concerning things is if a child starts puberty blockers before commencing puberty and then goes on to take cross-sex hormones straight after that, they can be left permanently infertile. Um, there's studies showing links to increased risk of things like heart problems, particularly in young girls taking testosterone. And then with the surgical procedures, well, I mean, that's pretty clear to see. I mean, we're, we're literally removing completely healthy parts of young people's bodies that they can never get back again. And again, some of the rhetoric on the other side, I find sickening. I, I, I've read online trans activists saying, it doesn't matter if a young woman has a double mastectomy because at a later point, if she regrets it, she can always get breast implants put back in. I mean, it's, it's sick, it's ludicrous. So you were previously a barrister and you worked in the civil service and then you kind of left that world to become a, a child therapist. And then partway through your course, you mm. were expelled from the course. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, I was, I was three years into my course and before I started the course, I, this, the gender ideology wasn't on my radar. Mm. You know, I, I just wanted to help people for whatever mental health issues they were struggling with. Um, I'd been counselling at Childline for a few years. That was what got me down the path of wanting to, to do this as a vocation for the rest of my life. Um, and then partway through the course, I began to take note of what was going on in society. I was beginning to hear some of the horror stories with the impact that this was having on children. So I, I joined together with a group of other therapists and trainees. We're now a group called Thoughtful Therapists, basically sharing similar concerns in this space. Decided to write a petition to the government because at that time they had announced that they were going to ban conversion therapy. Um, and there's a real concern that this was going to have a chilling impact on the profession, basically forcing therapists to affirm people into transitioning. So I, I started this government petition and it had my name on it. And I did some publicity around it. Uh, and then I receive an email in May of 21 from the, the deputy chief executive officer of my institute, who I've never had any previous dealings with before, saying that there's been some complaints made about my petition. Um, you know, would I come in for a, a chat? And she called it an informal chat. Now, you know, at that point, I felt a bit anxious, but I tried to trust in what she was saying. So I said, yes, you know, of course I will. Let's, let's chat again. And so we set up a meeting for two days later. The very next day, I received another email um, less than 24 hours after the first one and the subject line said termination of contract mm. uh, and I was informed that I was being expelled with immediate effects, that 
there would be no informal chat, there would be no hearing, there would be no appeal. Um, and when I went to respond to the email, they'd already blocked my university email address, so I, I couldn't even communicate with them. So, so basically, in a single email, uh, my entire life's ambitions went up in smoke. So you're now uh, embarking on litigation with this? Yeah, well, I, you know, having practised as a lawyer myself before, I, I didn't particularly want to get involved in litigation because I know it's expensive and time-consuming, but I didn't really have a choice, to be honest. I mean, as I said, they breached all their own policies. They weren't willing to have any conversation with me. Um, they kind of threw the rule book out the window. So I, as far as I was concerned, I was left with no choice. So in, in terms of the therapy community, have you found there are a lot of therapists that agree with you but they want to keep quiet or do you think the community has largely been captured by this ideology? It's a mix. Okay. Um, I mean, I have a lot of therapists who reach out to me anonymously and say that they support what I'm saying but they're too afraid to speak out because there's been others who have been hauled in front of disciplinary committees, etc., simply for stating things like, you know, men and men, men are men and women are women on Twitter. But there's a lot of hostility as well. This, I would say this is a vocation that has been ideologically captured in that respect. I was asked to give a talk at a, um, a therapeutic conference last September, I think it was, and the controversy that my uh, attendance generated was crazy. Mm. People tried to have it cancelled. These are other therapists tried to have it cancelled. Then when they wouldn't cancel me, they, tried, they basically boycotted the event itself. Uh, directly after I was speaking, they felt the need to set up a, a safe space to talk about trans people um, where they could support each other in a nurturing environment. I mean, it, it was crazy. And again, w w what I was saying, number one, is not that controversial. I'm basically saying we shouldn't cause irreversible harm to children. And by the way, maybe we should protect women's rights as well. Um, and also, I always try and have a respectful dialogue. And I, I would have a dialogue with anyone, including those that kind of, you know, seriously oppose what I'm saying. I'd have a respectful dialogue because that's how we work together as a society. But the people who are opposed to my beliefs in this space aren't willing to offer the same in return. Um, it's particularly worrying, again, for therapists. You know, therapists should have a certain degree of resilience. But the fact that they could be so triggered by the mere fact I was present in a building with them, I think, says a loss. And I, I, I do worry about those therapists, and I particularly worry for the clients that they're seeing and the harm they might be causing to those clients. You mentioned about Childline. You, know, you were doing some work for Childline, mm. and then you had some concerns about that. What was it that alarmed you about the Childline? Well, I mean, it was actually children coming through talking to me when I was doing my counselling there saying that they were trans that got me involved in all of this in the first place um, and started raising red flags. But I was concerned about what was taking place within the organisation as well. Um, I would see counsellors, you know, requesting children's pronouns at the very start of the conversation or offering their pronouns back to them. I mean, sometimes these are children in the middle of a crisis, possibly actively in the middle of trying to kill themselves. Right and counsellors were more concerned with bloody pronouns. I mean, yeah. pathetic. Um, I would come into shifts and I'd see posters from Stonewall, you know, all over the wall. And again, as far as I was concerned, when I signed up to this, this was meant to be a neutral, non-partisan uh, group. And instead, they're promoting Stonewall. I did a bit of digging. I spoke to senior management. I discovered that Stonewall had had a hand in developing Childline's web materials about transitioning. Because Childline's webpage on gender identity basically, as far as I'm concerned, reads as a roadmap towards the different ways in which a child can transition. Mm. 
again, that seemed highly, highly inappropriate. So I, I raised concerns with senior management. I offered to help redraft the website. I, you know, I wanted to collaborate with them on this and try and make things different from the inside. And for a time, it seemed as if they were willing to work with me on this. But it's it really, they were just pan, you know, pandering um, and kind of pretending that they were going along with what I was proposing. And then I was asked onto a Zoom call by the head of Childline, and he told me in the first sentence that I wasn't to come in for my next shift. Um, and that was the end of it. Uh, I wouldn't be volunteering there yeah. anymore. You know, and that was after five years of offering weekly counselling um, on their behalf. So, you know, that, that was, uh, it was, it was shocking. It's still shocking. Um, in some ways it hurts more than being kicked off the course. Mm. Um, you know, and I often have to walk by the Childline building and I feel deeply sad that I'm not able to be in there offering that same counselling to young people. But since they kicked me out, things seem to have gone from worse to worse and I've come across now message boards on Childline in which children are encouraging other where to source breast binders or telling each other that there's a genocide taking place against them and there's no moderation mm. by Childline staff or any red flags being raised at all. And they don't really seem to give a damn. Um, you know, I, I've complained to the Charity Commission. They've said they're now looking into this to see whether they might investigate. But Childline themselves seem to stand by what they've done. I've reached out to the Chief Executive Officer with my list of complaints and issues. He's not had the time to respond, although I, I noticed that the other day he's had plenty of time to post about cricket uh, on Twitter. Um, so I'm concerned about what his priorities are at this moment in time. But I mean, look, if, if children and, and adults can trust a child line in the NSPCC, where can they trust? Yeah. Uh, I, I just find it crazy that we're medicalising children for a mental health condition. Um, you know, gender dysphoria, things like body dysmorphia, you mentioned anorexia earlier. You know, it's not uncommon for anyone, but particularly children going through adolescence, to be uncomfortable in their bodies and dislike parts of themselves. But the answer, ideally, is to get people to be comfortable with who they are rather than trying to fundamentally change themselves. Yeah, we've always, um, British society generally, have this feeling that the person in the suit, you can trust them, the institution, you can trust them to be doing the right thing. We don't need to worry too much about what Childline, for example, is doing because they're a solid British institution. <laughs> um, the same with teachers. You assume, you know, they're, they're teaching your children the three R's, not some extreme gender ideology. Do you think this, this issue, this gender issue, is causing a bit of a turning point and people are starting to question all these institutions they always trusted? Yeah. I have parents emailing me and they, they don't know who to trust anymore. Mm. And they feel like they can't trust the doctors or the therapists or the teachers or the companies or the politicians. So, for example, stuff has come out recently to do with uh, Mermaids and the Tavistock. Susie Green, the former CEO of Mermaids, basically having a direct line to the head of the Tavistock and making referrals to children uh, to, uh, from, from children to the Tavistock, even though that she's not a mental or medical professional. Um, and she sees no issue with it. She posted something on Twitter the other day saying, what's the issue if I was doing the referrals if children's transphobic doctors wouldn't do them themselves? So she's putting out this narrative that if a doctor doesn't believe that a child should be on puberty blockers, it can't be because they don't believe it's in the best interest of that child. It must be because they're transphobic. In um, parts of North America, um, some of the... Um therapists are worried about not going along with the gender-affirming care in case they lose their licence. Do you think that's something that we could reach that point here? 
Yeah, I do. And I, I, more and more therapists speak to me, say they just, they just won't bother seeing clients with gender dysphoria because it will be too risky for them. Um, they don't want to lose their license. They don't want to potentially be criminalised. Mm. I mean, we have yet to see what the draft wording of this conversion therapy bill is, but it, it's got, it could well be a criminal offence that means that people who are convicted of it are, you know, receive jail time. So, yes, you, you'll have clinicians not wanting to work in this space anymore. Um, and it's a very difficult area to legislate for as well because we can't even define things like man or woman in today's society. So how can you create proper legislation in this space? Um, and it's a real slippery slope as well. I, I talk about in Australia, in Victoria, Australia, they passed a conversion therapy ban a year or two ago. And their Equality and Human Rights Commission have come out and said that parents who don't allow their children to take puberty blockers might be guilty of committing an offence of conversion therapy. So we, we could end up criminalising concerned parents as well off the back of this legislation. So yes, I mean, the, the, the threat is, is real. Um, therapists are already kind of captured. There's a, there's a document called the Memorandum of Understanding on Conversion Therapy. And, and basically, if you're signed up to any of the main regulatory bodies in the UK, you have to go along with it. And it basically promotes an affirmation-only approach. Um, so it's, it's not good for professional independence and ethics. Mm -hmm. As far as I'm concerned, it flies in the face of the Hippocratic Oath. We've seen this um, gender ideology throughout society and the corporations, um, institutions, etc. One area that seems to be standing up slightly more than others is sport. Hmm. Uh, I know British Cycling recently brought in some policy changes. Could you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, we've seen a bit of a pushback uh, in the sport sector, particularly in the UK, but some other international bodies as well. Um, and you've had a lot of former and current athletes, you know, particularly people like Sharon Davies, you know, standing out and saying this isn't okay. Um, and I think it's something that's kind of unified a lot of society in a way. It's something that everyone can get their heads around, you know, talking about things like uh, mental health conditions and uh, hormones. I think for some people it goes over their heads or it may appear a bit too complex, but, you know, everyone knows about sport and everyone understands this idea of kind of basic human fairness and so it's it's obvious i think to the public at large that you, you shouldn't have men who've had the benefit of going through a male puberty um and have all the natural physical you know physiological advantages that men have competing against women mm -hmm. so you know it's very good to see this although again even british cycling is holding back from embracing reality completely you know they've said they're not going to allow men to compete against women in professional cycling, but they've said that for community-based cycling initiatives that they run, that they're still going to allow it to take place, mm -hmm. um, including in uh, women-only community-based cycling events, um, which is bizarre because if it's woman-only, it should be you know, woman-only. But they're saying men can continue to take part in that, and they're still using a lot of ideological language. They're using phrases like uh, sex assigned at birth, um, which is usually an ideological giveaway. So I think a lot of these bodies, you know, whilst they're to be commended for protecting professional sport, they're trying to placate everyone and back both horses, and that's not in the interests of reality as a society. Um, you know, I, I'm looking forward to the day in which organisations stand up and say, actually, you know what, uh, men can't become women, and we're not ashamed or afraid to say that. 
but at the time, for the time being, we've kind of got this halfway house. But it's certainly better than it was uh, even a few months ago. You know, things are definitely going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. What um, if, say, you could have several big changes in society to try and deal with this? What what would they be? Um, well, I think we need to get clarification in our legislation, um, and there's current proposals from the government about potentially amending the Equality Act to make it clear that when they use the word sex, that it means biological sex. <clears throat> so I think that's very important. Um, I would have a complete ban on irreversible medical transitioning for children. Um, I need to give some more thought to the position for adults. You know, generally, I'm of the opinion that um, you know, consenting adults should be free to do what they want as long as they're not harming anybody else. But I, you know, I still don't believe it's therapeutically ethical to do this. So I need, I, you know, I, I need to give that more thought. But certainly, I would have it banned for children completely. Any form of transitioning in that respect. Um, I think women's spaces need to be protected. There should be no circumstances in which biological men are able to enter spaces like female prisons or female you know, domestic abuse shelters or what have you. Um, and we need free speech to be properly protected. You know, I'm still concerned I, the, the government have released new guidance on these non-crime hate incidents, mm. but there's still people who are losing their jobs and their livelihoods and reputations because, you know, they dare to say that men can't become women or because they use the wrong pronouns for somebody and that should not be happening in this society. Um, and we need to see universities and places of study uphold free speech, you know, for their students. Even what we saw the other day in Oxford, you know, with Kathleen Stock going to speak there. Um, and I'm very happy that the event went ahead. But, I mean, the, these students, they're, they're not there to protest. They're there to shut down and disrupt. And it's concerning that it is what to meant, you know, in what's meant to be a beacon of uh, intellect and uh, academia, that there are students there willing to shut down free and open debate. Where can people go if they want to find out more? If people want to keep up with my work, I'm on Twitter. I've got a Substack as well. People can keep up to date with my case. I've got a crowd justice page. Um, I have to keep raising funds because, as I said, this is you know extremely expensive, and I'm hugely thankful to those who have donated to the cause so far because without that, I simply wouldn't have been able to bring this case in the first place. So people can get updates on my case and donate if they like to on that page. Um, and to be honest, and I'm very thankful I can say this, but reading most mainstream papers most days of the week, I mean, The Telegraph, The Mail, to some extent The Times, have been very good at covering this over recent months. And there isn't a day that goes by without this stuff cropping up in the news. So people are finally talking about this. Um, and I would encourage those listening, if they feel able to, to stand up and speak out, because unless a greater cohort of society are willing to actually stand up for what they believe in, things just aren't going to change. James Essas, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you.